of Acts, chapter 23. And I'm just going to jump right into the text this morning. Acts 23 will begin in verse 11. One of the things that we're going to talk about today is just God's plan versus man's plan. And we see really early on in our text this uh, comparison made between the two. In verse 11 of Acts 23, we see Jesus coming to Paul at night saying, Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, and so you must testify also in Rome. And so we see quite clearly the plan of God revealed to Paul. He is going to Rome. But then in verse 12 of Acts chapter 23, we see another plan. We'll call this one man's plan. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So Paul is in custody with the tribune. He is visited by Jesus who tells him, take courage. You've testified about the facts pertaining me in Jerusalem, and now you will go to Rome and do the same. The next day, a group of more than 40 Jews got together and formed a conspiracy. And the conspiracy involved an oath that no one in this group would eat or drink until they had successfully killed Paul. And their plan to kill Paul was relatively simple. They would go to the person, the Roman official, who was holding Paul in custody and say, we would like to examine him further concerning his claims. Would you bring him to us? As they bring Paul into their presence, a group of men would be waiting outside to jump on top of him, probably stab him, you know, shank him prison style, right? So you've got the plan of God, verse 11, the plan of man beginning in verse 12. And this is just one of those opportunities that this sort of, this genre of scripture presents for us to just make comparisons. So you could just go through this and make comparisons between the way that God does things and the way that man does things and so forth. And honestly, like we could talk about that quite a bit. But I just want to focus on one point, and that would be that man's plans often depend on concealment and deception in order to bring them to pass. And you see that in this passage. Like a lot of this is based on trickery, on bait and switch, on lies and deceits. God doesn't work that way. God does conceal things, but he doesn't conceal things to keep us from intervening in his plans. Um, there's this great story about one of the most uh, underappreciated basketball players of all time, Larry Bird, six foot 11, perfect uh, free throw, perfect to jump shot, so on and so forth. And he was playing against a new young upstart in the league. And this guy had been telling Larry Bird that he was old, that he was washed up, that he had no more uh, bounce and so forth and so on. And so for shot after shot a whole evening, Larry Bird would tell this young man who was guarding him, now I'm gonna dribble left three times, I'm gonna stop, and I'm gonna hit a bank shot 
off the left side of the glass, and then he would do that shot. And he would just tell his defender every time, right before he made the move, now I'm gonna go over to this part of the three-point line, and I'm gonna dribble right after you plant, and then I'm gonna make another three. And he just did this shot after shot in front of the whole team watching this poor, young, prideful man just get humiliated. And I thought about that as I considered how God is just so open about his intentions. He is not concealing them in hopes that we don't, he's not afraid that if we were to discover his plans, we could do something about them. That's exactly what's happening with these 40 assassins. Uh, They are concealing their plans. They're making every attempt to to, to, to make sure that no one knows because if someone finds out, it won't work, as we will see in a moment. It's like God is just so not that way. But the most obvious thing to kind of pull from this comparison between man's plans and God's plans is that man's plans fail and God's plans do not fail. The quickest summary of the text would simply be Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Or Isaiah 14, 24. As I have planned, so it shall be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Or Daniel 4, 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his own will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Or Proverbs 21.30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. So the first point today is you've got man's plans and God's plans, and the basic thing I think we would just draw away from this is God's plans never fail. Man's plans often do. But the next thing I want you to see, and this would be point number two, is just God's plans are often accomplished via something that theologians call providence. And you may have heard that name before recently. Even this morning, you might have seen that name someplace. Uh, God's plans are accomplished via providence. Uh, let's define providence just uh, as simply as possible. One of the kind of common Uh, Bible dictionaries just would say this. Providence literally means foresight, which is true. It's a pro, it's a Latin Latin compound, pro and vide, vision, foresight. But generally, providence, the word providence is used to denote God's preserving and governing all things by means of second causes. And I really like that definition in particular, and there are many definitions for providence, but I like that definition because it, it references this idea of second causes. What, are they, what does that definition mean by second causes? How, how, how does God do the things he does, preserving and governing, by second causes? What is second cause? Well, it's God using things he's already accomplished to accomplish his will in some particular direction. The idea being pretty simple. God very often uses small, overlooked, mundane things to accomplish his will. And we can see that in verse 16, which is the next verse in our text in Acts 23. The plot has been made by the more than 40 assassins. And then we see in verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Just just a young man, a nephew, 
probably, you know, doing something mundane. His mom sent him to the store to buy, you know, eggs or something. And God, in his sovereign skill, arranged for Paul's nephew to be the one who just so happens to walk by as he discovers or overhears this plot taking place. So this is the idea. This is providence sort of exemplified in a single passage. God has a plan. That plan is to get Paul to Rome. And God and man has a plan that contravenes God's plan, and that plan is to kill Paul. Those two plans are contradictory. They both can't go, they can't both happen. Uh, not at the same time anyway. Uh, so, so God accomplishes his plan by causing this other thing, this secondary cause, namely his nephew, to overhear the plot. Now look back at verse 17. Uh, the young man hears of the plot, verse 16, goes and tells Paul, and Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him, verse 18. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say to you. Tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? In verse 20, and he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him, but do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. This is a large, uh, this is a large group of folks here. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, also provide mounts, horses, horses, for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So we've talked about God's providence. We've talked about, well, we talked about God's plans versus man's plans. And then we've talked about God's providence. But now let's see that God's plans are often accomplished using man's plans. What do I mean by that? Well, again, what is God's plan? Verse 11, to get Paul to Rome. What is man's plan? Verse 12, to kill Paul. Not only does God providentially provide for the nephew to be in the place where he hears about the plot and, is, and, and Paul is kept from death, but God actually uses the plot to get him one step closer to Rome. That's pretty cool. I want to make sure that's understood. When the plot is uncovered, the tribune, the, the Roman official who has Paul in custody, springs into action to protect him, and that action means a free ticket out of Jerusalem to the location of Felix in Caesarea, who is the governor appointed directly by Caesar. God used this plot against Paul to accomplish his purposes for Paul. Say that one more time. God used this plot against Paul to accomplish his purposes for Paul. Now, as we move into chapter 24, Paul isn't in Jerusalem anymore. He's in the palace of the governor 
who has been appointed by Caesar. And now he will have the opportunity because of God's sovereign skill to proclaim the gospel, this governor named Felix, over and over and over again, the text says, for a total of two years. Now, one of the great problems when we talk about God's providence is that there are just too many of them to count. I was reminded this week that, you know, we can only see like 1% of the electromagnetic spectrum. And I think we, I think, I think actually we can see like way less than even like half of 1% of the electromagnetic spectrum. And I think we can only hear about 1% of the acoustic spectrum. So it's this idea that there's all of this information that's in this room right now, and you and I don't see it, and we don't hear it. And that's the greatest and most beautiful. God, God gives us fun challenges, and one of them is like, you're in, you're in a story, and you understand less than 1% of it. The details happening by his sovereign skill are innumerable. And so it's like this, it's like this impossible to complete puzzle, at least on this side of heaven. There's just so many of these details. And I could really, I could talk about all of these cool details over and over and over again, all for hours today. Uh, another detail. Paul's a Roman citizen. We were told in our passage two weeks ago, how did Paul become a Roman citizen? He was born a Roman citizen. That citizenship means everything to the accomplishment of this mission. God caused Paul before he was born to be born in a very particular place so that many years later, he would have the opportunities afforded to him due to that particular citizenship. But you wanna hear another really cool and funny and evidence of God's sense of humor detail in this story? He uses providence to, to, to have the nephew nearby to discover the plot. He then uses providence again to uh, trigger this evacuation from Jerusalem, so essentially a, a first-class ticket out of Jerusalem into place closer both politically, geographically to Rome. But one of the really cool, like, little hidden things is he, he has Paul delivered to a governor named Felix, whose name literally means happy accident, I mean, there are evidences that God is often telling jokes in the way that he does things, in the way that he runs the world. And one of them is, is through all of these extremely precise uh, coincidences, extremely precise acts of sovereign care, he delivers them into a man whose name sort of means like happy or lucky accident, Felix. That's where we get the word felicity. It's like, oh, look what just happened. And there's another one that's so cool. Look at verse 22 of chapter 24. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, that's all because of God's providence. We don't even know what happened there. We don't know why Felix has an accurate knowledge of the way. We don't know why Felix is governor. We don't know why Felix is named Felix. Every one of those things, God knows. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, okay, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his deeds. Let's pause there for a moment. To evacuate Paul out from under the assassination plot 
he is brought to Felix. Felix just so happens to have considerable knowledge of the way. And Felix determines that Paul will be kept under extraordinarily loose guard. This doesn't count as prison. This isn't even like white collar prison. Like, you know, this is, this is, this is him just being uh, kept in the, you know, the, the, the general grounds, plenty of liberty. His friends are able to care for his needs. Just pause for a moment and think of Paul as your friend, as your brother. Wouldn't all of us think, God, you are so good. This man has been working himself to death. And now he has to stay place, stay put. He gets to share the gospel every day, not only with Felix, but with the guards and everyone else. And he's not in danger. And he just gets to rest for a minute. So even in this, like, there's just so many things that God is doing throughout this, but that wasn't the point I wanted to, to, to mention. He, in verse 26, it says, well, actually, go back to verse 24. 24, 24. After some days, Philip came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. Well, this is not a good thing. You don't want your, you don't want the guy with the power to kill you to be alarmed as you're sharing with him. And we're a little concerned when we see the sovereign of the realm alarmed. But Paul is bold and he is being, he's being faithful to the gospel. And so he reasons with Felix about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. And this alarms Felix. And Felix had every kind of reason in his flesh to say, go away, which is what he does. So Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So what's really happening, and Luke tells us, is that Felix is put off by the message. It's disturbing his flesh. And he's being polite about it. He just says, go away, I'm busy. I've got lots of important things to do. I'll come back, I'll, I'll call you back when you have the opportunity. So it's, it's, it's Felix's sin and his fear of judgment and so forth that is removing Paul. Look at verse 26. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. Now we have a second sin of Felix, greed, which is probably partly why he's afraid of judgment, but anyway, he's a, he's a mess. We're all messes. We're all messes of contradictory passions, James tells us. And God uses that to advance his cause. You see, if it was just alarm, Paul would be no more. He would be banished at least and maybe killed. But no, he's, he's banished until Felix starts thinking, you know, Paul has a lot of wealthy friends, which he did. Maybe Paul could give me some money. So God actually uses Felix's desire for wealth to cause Paul not only to endure for a long period of time in this place, but also to give him repeated opportunities to share the gospel. God is so sovereignly perfect that he even knows how to allow one sin in a person to check another sin in the same person. Think about this for a minute. God knows how to use sin in a totally depraved sinner to regulate another sin 
and a totally depraved sinner. And I think this is very important to note, just, just from a degree of thankfulness, God has restrained much darkness and much evil in the world through this very mechanism. It's pretty cool. It's as, it's as if God allows these utterly fallen, only one choice, be dead in my sins and trespasses. God allows that to take place, but then he allows the sins themselves to be so contradictory as to restrain the person from ultimate action, ultimate action which could be extremely dark. So for instance, there are many desires that people have that are sinful, that are regulated by a sinful love of freedom. It's like, I would do X, Y, and Z, but if I did X, Y, and Z, I could get arrested and then I would lose my freedom and I love my freedom. God is, God is so sovereign, so over everything, that he even advances his purposes through the contradictory passions at work in those who are estranged from him and in rebellion to him. I mean, this is just amazing stuff, guys. So God, the truth is, and as we see in this example, God has routinely advanced his kingdom through selfishness and greed and even vindictiveness. <laughs> Paul says in Philippians 1.15, he's in prison when he says this, um, some preach Christ out of rivalry. And he says that they do this to stir up trouble for him. They, they preach, they're, they're people who are actually preaching Christ to make Paul's life hard. But Paul says in verse 18, what then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. To see God as the sovereign mover over all things is to see everything used against you, everything come against you, to see everything as part of God's great plan. And I think that's the main idea when you study the topic of providence in the scriptures and when you study all of the many amazing things. I don't know if there are many areas of theology that are written about as well consistently as providence. Providence is just so beautifully described and people just throughout the years who are skilled writers have embraced the theme and so you can just find so much good stuff on providence. And the main theme seems to be, or one of the main themes seems to be, that, man, one incredible purpose of providence is our comfort. One incredible purpose of providence is to comfort us. And I want to talk about that for a minute, because I want, want you to walk away today knowing how to deploy joy in God's providence as a means of comfort in difficult times. So when we talk about providence, we, we really mean God's in charge of everything and he uses everything to accomplish his purposes. But I think it seems, at least to me, especially important to say that man's sin is no impediment to the accomplishment of God's purposes. And rather than be an impediment, rather than be an obstacle, man's rebellion winds up being obedient to God's ultimate design and that even in their rebellion against the king, they wind up serving the king, as we see these 40 assassins, uh, would-be assassins, do. So this is true of a sin like malice. Those assassins, they hated Paul. They hated Paul so much that they made an oath not to eat or drink until 
he was dead. What do you hate enough to, to not eat or drink? I, don't, I know most of you really like to eat and drink, and I, don't know, I, and I, I, I just don't know what that would be, you know? What do you love enough? <laughs> That's a convicting question. This deep, deep malice, hatred for someone at the level that they, these people were willing to bring their own bodies to the edge, well, perhaps all the way, to full death through malnutrition, starvation. They hated Paul. God used their, that deep, deep hatred to accomplish his purposes. And then you've got someone like Felix. He seems to generally like Paul, but he's got this pesky little greed sin going on. God could use those too. God does use those too. So let me just be very specific as we begin to think about how do we use providence, God's providence, as a means of bringing comfort to us in hard times. Well, one of the hardest things we'll ever experience is when people sin against us. So I think it's very important to say this. People sin against you, sometimes in mild ways, sometimes in really mean ways, and not a sliver of that sin will do anything but advance God's purposes for your life. Now they, let's be clear, they might totally ruin your purposes for your life. And this is, I think, one of the main reasons why we're afraid when, when people turn on us. It's not so much that we're worried that God's purposes for our life would be ruined, but that we realize that our purposes for our life, oh, they're very fragile. And it's very possible that God would allow a season of suffering, not to remove his purposes, to impede his purposes for us, but to, <laughs> to ruin our purposes for us. But the truth is, is that when people are their worst, when they really turn into you, or when they're just kind of accidentally at their worst, God is gonna use all of that to accomplish his purpose for your life. John Calvin, man, this guy was one of the most criticized individuals and still is that has ever, that has ever climbed into a pulpit. And he had to deal with criticisms constantly. And he wrote this, there is no erratic power or action or motion in creatures, but that they are governed by God's secret plan in such a way that nothing happens except what is knowingly and willfully decreed by him. So stuff's gonna, stuff's gonna happen. People are gonna be terrible. God's got it. Now, next level. This is, uh, this is both biblical, rooted in history, and, and also much experience in, in counseling people going through very difficult times. Believing in God's providence, this is key, please remember this. Believing in God's providence is way easier than interpreting God's providence. What do I mean by that? I mean, something is going on in your life. The instinct is gonna want to be to understand what this is doing that is good for you, the kingdom, whatever, right? You're gonna wanna understand the purpose behind this. That is extremely difficult. Might be, often is impossible. The best thing to do in those moments is to say, I believe in God's sovereign care. I believe in his sovereign providence over all things. Getting deeper than that and trying to discern what this is for can often not be productive. So John, so let me give you a couple Puritans take on this. 
John Flavel said it this way, the providence of God is like a Hebrew word. It can only be read backwards. It's like often in the middle of a situation, we're like, this thing's happening and I know God's behind it. I know God's for me and so on. So let me try to figure out what he's doing. It's like, maybe you should just knuckle up, get through the thing and then read it backwards. Like, because that's like actually the only way to do it. Jeremiah Day, another, another old guy, old dead guy. The longer I live, the more faith I have in providence and the less faith I have in my interpretation of providence. That's what I want you to do. When the hard, confusing, difficult thing comes, get, make sure you're putting almost all of your weight on, I believe that God is for me and that all of this is going to accomplish his purposes. You can put your little toe if you want to on the, <laughs> what might he be doing here? But friends, good luck. You'll probably guess wrong. Why? Because you see about 1%. I see about 1% of what God's really doing. When in church history, providence has been, it's always been presented primarily as a means of comfort to believers. So for instance, the Heidelberg Catechism, what dost thou mean, this is question 27, what dost thou mean by the providence of God? Here's the answer. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he upholds and governs earth, heaven, and all creatures, so that the herbs, the grass, the rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come, not by chance, but be his fatherly hand. Question 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Well, what advantage is knowing this? And the answer, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. Jonathan Edwards was actually fairly consistently a topical preacher in one sense. When something happened in his world, he would stop whatever he was doing and turn to that topic and preach a text, preach on a text pertaining to that topic. And remember, Jonathan Edwards was actually a British citizen. He was living in America, but, but at that time, America was fully under British rule. There was a, a war that had been going very poorly for the British. And people were very concerned about the British prospects in this war. And so Jonathan Edwards arose one Sunday morning and called for prayer and fasting for the British Empire and for success in this war, I believe, with the Spanish and then he preached a sermon. And in that sermon, he says, talks about this idea of public commotions. Public commotions. That is so irrelevant to us. We don't have any public commotions. It's not like the last three years have been super twilight zone commotion-y or anything. When I saw that Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on public commotions, I was like, I gotta read this sermon. 
And he, he rose to the pulpit and he said, public commotions that shake the state of mankind do not shake the love of God to his servants. However great and general those commotions may be, though they may shake and overturn the state of kingdoms and vast empires, though they make vast alterations in the world, yet they will not shake God's love to his servants. His love to them is not so easily shaken. God loved them before they had a being, yea, before the foundation of the states and the kingdoms in this world. His love has stood firm for all eternity. It was the same yesterday that it is today. It has remained the same through all past ages and all past changes of the world and will be the same forever. When the day shall come that there shall not only be a great commotion in the state of mankind, but heaven and earth shall be shaken and shall pass away with great noise, still God's love will remain. He loves them, his servants, with an everlasting love. Number one, kind of identifiable purpose of understanding and embracing and believing in God's providence is it just brings comfort and steadfastness and thanksgiving to our souls. But number two is that it brings comfort to others. Eric Thomas wrote a little book. I would say if you want to read, if, if this is encouraging to your heart, go get this book, just uh, What is Providence by Derek Thomas. It's like this, this thick. And, uh, and he wrote this beautiful little book on it, and he goes, goes through little sections of Scripture talking about different stories in the Bible that are obviously highlighting the topic of providence. So he goes through Ruth and so on and so forth. And then he, gets, he talks about Joseph, and he makes this massively helpful point. Providence has wider issues in mind than merely our personal comfort or gain. So I've just said, one of the things providence is supposed to do is supposed to give us comfort, right? Now, here's the other side of that. Derek Thomas, it has wider issues in mind than merely our personal comfort or gain. Now, he's talking about the story of Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, nearly killed, put in prison unjustly, forgotten, and then ascended through God's hand of political favor. He's talking about that story. He says, providence has wider issues in mind than merely our personal comfort or gain. Here's something so key, friends. In response to the oft-cited question in times of difficulty, why me? The answer that this narrative gives is them. He allows us to suffer so that others may be blessed. So in addition to seeing just being comforted that God is in control, when we are in a situation that demands us to lean heavily on belief and faith that God is in charge, that he's over all things, is providentially dispensing these things, one of the things Derek Thomas reminds us is, sometimes we will think, why me? And the answer is, them. Others, brothers, sisters, future generations, you're going through this for the sake of other people. And as I try to tell people going through hard times, God loves you, but he doesn't love only you. 
And because he doesn't love only you, he will send you through hardships so that you can be a blessing to others. And friends, let me assure you of this. If to whatever extent God has allowed you to be a blessing to others, you will be blessed forever as a consequence. If you are of great help to those who by faith believe, especially through enduring suffering, praise God. So second point of providence, not only is for your comfort, but for the comfort of others. And Derek Thomas continues, Joseph suffered in order that his undeserving brothers might receive a blessing. In their case, that would be that they would be kept alive during a time of famine and have the covenant promises of their father, grandfather, and great-grandfather reaffirmed before their eyes. Now, let's talk about the ultimate purpose of providence. Look back at Acts 24, verse 24. Some days, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now go back in your Bibles to chapter 23 and verse 11. This is where it all began. This is where God's plan was revealed and all the providence that followed to bring it to pass. Acts 23, 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him, Paul, and said, take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. What's one purpose of providence? To bring you comfort. What's another purpose of providence? To bring others comfort. What's the purpose of providence? To make much of Jesus. To make much of Christ. That is what God is doing. I laughed this morning when Josh read from Colossians 1. We didn't plan that. It couldn't have been a more perfect reference to exactly what this message ends on, and that is that Jesus is the one who is sovereignly over all things, and that all things he's executing sovereignly, upholding by the word of his power, the book of Hebrews says, for him. Through him, in him, for him. The purpose of all of God's providential working in the end is to make much of Jesus Christ. Our comfort is a secondary end. The comfort of others is a secondary end. God uses our comfort, our love for him as a means of elevating Jesus even more. And again, another writer who has written beautifully about the subject of providence, Sinclair Ferguson, writes it this way. The providence of God is the way in which he governs everything wisely, first for the glory of his own name and second, for the ultimate blessing of his children. First, for the glory of his own name, and second, for the blessing of his own children. To introduce communion today, I wanna remind you of something we saw in Acts many, many, many months ago. Acts 2, verses 22 through 23, Peter stands up and proclaims, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. If we really wanna understand providence, we have to look at the cross. And we have to see God's expert design in giving us himself and placing him in a position to suffer under mankind's plots 
to accomplish God's saving purposes for his enemies.